A little under six years ago, Amy and I were uh, with her parents for Christmas in High Wycombe. We were, I say we were, really technically it was Amy who was heavily pregnant, uh, with Joseph, our son. And we were in uh, enjoying Christmas together. And the previous, I should say, the previous uh, pregnancy we'd experienced uh, where our daughter Grace was born uh, happened all very quickly. So we were aware of this. And Amy noticed some changes and just a, a sense that things were beginning to get going. And so we left High Wycombe and went to London where we were living at the time just to make sure that we were close. In fact, we went straight to the hospital. We'd had the bag in the car for weeks, you know, uh, or at least days. Um, and um, so we went to the hospital and had a conversation and with the midwives uh, and they checked Amy as they do those sorts of things and we were told to go walking around the place. Now, I, I want to say this. Amy is stoic. Her pain threshold is very high and she doesn't complain. She's really British <laughs> in her constitution. And so we wandered around the area surrounding Kingston Hospital for quite a while. And every so often, quite regularly actually, Amy would stop, cross her legs like this and go, ooh, that's ouchy, you know. <laughs> and we did this for a little while. And then having done that uh, for maybe an hour or so late at night, um, probably about 11 at night, this, you know, we went into, back into the hospital and said, look, we've walked around. And they said, well, how's the pain? And Amy was like, ooh, it's a bit sore. Uh, or something similar. And so they said, well, actually, okay, um, why don't you go home and go home and just have a bath, have a nice warm bath, and just see where you're up to. And so we did. We took their advice. We went home. Amy had a nice warm bath. And I did what, what any uh, husband and father-to-be should do in these circumstances. I went straight to sleep. <laughs> uh, so I went to sleep. And um, Amy climbed into bed beside me. And then within minutes... Uh, were shouting, Johnny, wake up! The baby's coming! <laughs> or something, uh, and I jumped up out of bed and immediately froze. I was so panicked. I, I was like, okay, what do we need to do? I st- I, and I visibly remember sh- physically shaking. I was shaking at this point. I remember trying to help her get dressed, shaking. I didn't have control of my own hands. I wasn't able to even command my own body. And eventually, yeah, we got to the car, but it was, it was through contractions. And Amy just sat in the seat, held on as tightly as she could, and said, Johnny, we're not going to make it. I would like to say uh, that I calmed her, that I talked <laughs> gently to her, that I had confidence and faith, uh, that it was all going to be okay, and I was up to the job. I was not at all up to the job. I fell to pieces. Uh, I was trying to call at the same the ambulance or the hospital at the same time as drive. I, eventually, we stopped the car, uh, and I called, and they said, call the ambulance. I called the ambulance, um, and we were still driving at this point. And uh, we eventually, Amy said to me, it was really funny, this is how spiritual she is. She said, Johnny, pray in tongues. So she's praying in tongues between contractions. Uh, I was praying in another language. <laughs> I'm not sure it's a language they remember or recognize in heaven. That'd be my only comment. And, and we got stopped by the side of the road. And Amy was, it was game on. I was on the phone to the ambulance. And I, I will leave the detail for you here, except to say one question was asked to me 
by the ambulance uh, technician or whoever was, I was on the phone to. And this is the question, can you see the head? And that, my friends, is a question you never want to be asked. Uh, anyway, eventually, by God's grace, an ambulance came. They were altogether more chilled than I was. You know, we have people in this room who are midwives who do this every day. Um, I wish you were with me at that point. And uh, we did, by uh, some miracle, make it to the hospital. Joseph was safely delivered with Amy still, her coat and everything else uh, on. And uh, the midwife said, I cannot believe you didn't have this baby uh, in your car. The point of telling you this story is simply to say, when you're under stress, don't you find that who you really are comes out? Like, you can be, uh, I can, you know, I, let me just confess, I can put on a front with you. you, you can, all of you, you see me at my best. You see the best there is, and some of you are like, whoa, whoa gosh. <laughs> <laughs> this is my best. <laughs> but, you know, when you're not around, and it's just my family, or it's just me, sometimes it's a different Johnny. When I'm just, well, let me tell you, when I'm at the park with my dog, my dog is jumping up at me and biting me. I'm a different person. When my kids don't obey me first time, I can be a different Johnny. Who we are when we're under stress is, I think, who we really are. And thinking about that and dwelling on it, I guess, in this last week has, has made me think differently about this particular story from the crucifixion that we've been looking at this morning. Now, I'm not for a minute, uh, understand this, I'm not for a minute trying to compare uh, my experience uh, of uh, preparing uh, for the birth of Joseph with Jesus' experience, or indeed with many of your experiences when you've been in uh, serious stress and moments of suffering, moments of profound difficulty. I'm not trying to equate my experience with you except to say that don't we find out who we are in those moments. And for some of us, actually, and there have been times like this, I shouldn't be overly harsh on myself. There are times I do surprise myself. Virtue emerges in these experiences, and I am surprised. But we do find out who we are in these moments, and we see this profoundly with Jesus. I have a confession to make about the crucifixion and the story of Jesus on the cross, and I guess the confession is this. I've never been able to pin it down. I've never been able to fully understand it. I've never been able to, I've never had confidence in even fully arti or even articulating what is going on with Jesus on the cross. It's so complex, it defies simple categorization. And I suppose for some, to some degree, that's made me hesitant to even speak about what happens with Jesus on the cross. But this week, as I've been uh, in and preparing this sermon, first of all, I found it incredibly, immensely difficult. Some sermons just slide out of your brain, out of your heart, and they're easy to prepare. And other ones are really, really hard, and this has been really hard. And I usually have I found that when it's hard, it's because God is calling for more than a sermon. He's calling for a deeper engagement with his people than I could give by preparing a message. And I think that's what he wants this morning. I think today, what's called for is not a clever sermon on the cross. I don't have one. I don't have the capacity to give you one. But what I think he is calling is for a heart connection with the cross. Uh, and I think that's what he has for us today. So let's take a journey with Jesus. 
and the criminals. We're in a series called Jesus and the One, and here we have two, or even a few. And I want to look at this journey uh, that Jesus has. And I just want to look at Jesus today. And I want you to see him. I want you to see how extraordinary he is. How incredible. How vulnerable. How majestic he is. Let's look at this. What do we read? Luke chapter 23. Wrong page. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. We'll move on. For if, this is verse 31 now, for if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The story goes on. We'll come to some of that detail in a minute. The first person we meet in this story is Simon. What strikes me about everyone we're about to meet, pretty much everyone who Jesus is about to spend his last moments with, this moment of intense stress and difficulty, there is no moment of, uh, no greater moment of stress than the moment Jesus is experiencing here. There is no possibility that anyone has experienced stress like what he's experiencing. Not just a death, but a brutal death. He's been beaten within an inch of his life before this point. That's why Simon's involved in the story, by the way. Jesus doesn't even have the strength to carry the crossbeam up the hill, which is what most people who are crucified would be expected to do. We meet Simon, and the first thing that strikes me about Simon is Simon is a stranger to Jesus. Jesus doesn't know Simon. It says here uh, that the reason Simon's been picked, he's wandering in from the country. He's on his way some other place just to probably worship in Jerusalem at the Passover. And he's found there, and the, the soldiers just say, Simon, you, you there, you can carry this. Jesus doesn't know him. Jesus here with Simon, this man who's carrying his cross, this intimate moment, and yet Jesus is sharing it with a complete stranger. Then we have the crowd, these people. Jesus has been pleasing them for three years. He's been ministering to them. He's poured out his heart, even his whole life to them. There's nothing, there's no, uh, there's nothing he hasn't done for them that they have asked. They've been his greatest fans and yet in the last couple of days they've turned on him and every one of these people has shouted out, crucify him, crucify him. And now he's surrounded by them. In this moment of crisis, Jesus has no friends. He just has the crowd who've become his enemies. And then we have the women. There's a slightly lighter feel to the women. Uh, what would happen typically in circumstances like this at crucifixions is that uh, believing, particularly pious women, would, would come and surround the people who had been crucified. And they'd offer a drink, uh, usually had some kind of a narcotic in it. And the purpose of this drink would be to, to lessen the suffering. And they'd pray prayers. And they, they'd be some kind of, uh, I guess, some kind of softening of what was going on. There's some moment of tenderness here. But even then, even these women aren't known to Jesus. Still, for Jesus, these people around him are strangers. And then we have the soldiers. Brutal people. Brutal people. 
mercenaries, people whose job it is to demean, belittle, and brutalize. And Jesus has been at their mercy for hours. He hasn't slept. He's been brutally beaten. And he's on his last legs as he walks up. And here the soldiers are still by his side. These people that have just crushed him. And there is company. In his last moments, just how alone must he have felt? How alone must he have been in these moments? Just with these people surrounding him. And then we have the religious leaders. Those people who arranged for him to be killed. And they're watching on just to make sure it happens. You get the sense as you read the text that they're celebrating what's happening. They're mocking him. They're sneering at him. Along with the people. Along with the soldiers. There's no sense here that he has anybody on his side. There's nobody in his corner. And he's surrounded, flanked when he finally is crucified by two criminals. Again, he doesn't know them. They're sharing this experience of crucifixion, which is the most brutal death imaginable. In fact, the Romans reserved it for uh, revolutionaries and renegades. It was impossible if you were a Roman citizen to be crucified. You would never think of doing it. In fact, they phased crucifixion out because it was seen as being too brutal. My intention here is this is not meant to be a Mel Gibson movie. This is not meant to uh, overwhelm you. Uh, with the particulars about crucifixion. I just want you to see this, that Jesus in his final moments was surrounded by people who he didn't know. And that's hard. That's really hard. It's hard to suffer. It's hard to suffer. Uh, you know, I know there's so much suffering in this room that I don't, that I don't know. I know that many of us have suffered deeply and some of us are suffering currently deeply. And suffering is hard. It's the hardest thing of life. And I know it's one of the hardest things in our culture to ask the question, why? Why do we suffer? Why does it have to be this way? When suffering is bad, but suffering alone is doubly hard. We don't have people around us who can help us, who we can call family, who we can lean on. It's immensely hard. And Jesus is in just this position. He's surrounded by people who he doesn't know. It's an immensely painful and difficult situation and all of that makes his behaviour all the more extraordinary his response is even more inexplicable because Jesus doesn't fall into all of the things that I fall into when I'm under the slightest bit of stress there's no sense of panic notice how serene he is in everything he says it's not defensive. There's no shred of bitterness. Notes he never blames anyone. His is an extraordinary spirit. What do we see in Jesus? I want to say three things really, really briefly. The first thing we see in Jesus is somebody who is vulnerable yet undefended he's vulnerable he's physically vulnerable he's been beaten as I said within an inch of his existence he is half dead uh, gruesomely treated 
He's physically vulnerable. Even as he walks up the hill, he hasn't the energy to carry his cross. He's emotionally, surely, immensely vulnerable. He's been abandoned. We've talked about who's there. We haven't talked about who isn't there. No disciples. None of the people that he's poured his life into, his very life into. For the last three years, they're all far from him, cowering somewhere, uh, attempting to say, stay safe. He's vulnerable and spiritually. Most one, I think one of the most extraordinary things is that Jesus is able to pray a prayer which begins with Father. His connection to God is untouched. But you can hear the vulnerability, I think, can't you? Father, forgive them. Father, it's intensely personal. It's richly and deeply vulnerable. And yet he is not defended. You know, the way that we often behave when we suffer is to put a barrier around us, don't we? Our hearts, our bodies, our lives, we, we seek to defend ourselves because we don't want to feel pain again. Often we do this in relationships. If we've been hurt in relationships, we'll place a casing around ourselves. And we'll, on, on, Honestly, most of this stuff I think for us is we don't know we're doing it. Often it happens very early in our lives. And we'll make vows, even as children, we'll say, I will never be hurt again in that way. And often you see this with people who've been rejected. They, they will reject before they can be rejected because it's the best way to say, stay safe. You know, I used to think up until the last year or so that I was good at intimacy with other people. And I am good at sort of staged vulnerability. But what I found is that it's much harder to be truly intimate with another person. It's actually really hard for me to be really intimate with God. Because I'm really used to performing for him and making him pleased and thinking that that, you know, that will sort of be the foundation of my relationship. But actually, intimacy is a lot harder. Most of us are like that to some degree. And yet Jesus is completely undefended. And I mean by that that he's not defensive, as I said, but I mean more than that. He doesn't, he doesn't close himself off. Here he, are, here he is with his hands wide open, undefended still with his arms open, even on the cross in the moment of his greatest suffering. It's an extraordinary thing. What do we see here? He crucified him there. You know, Jesus is on the cross and he is naked. It says here, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Where are his clothes? He doesn't wear them anymore. As a Jewish man, to be, to be hung up on the cross naked was the worst shame imaginable. Everybody just walking past, seeing you. In that state, completely vulnerable, completely vulnerable and yet not defended, not defensive. But there's more, he's abused yet forgiving. Jesus is vulnerable yet undefended, he is abused and yet forgiving. So the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar, wine vinegar, and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And here's his response Father, forgive them, 
They know not what they're doing. Now, for those of you who've studied Luke's gospel, who remember the beginning of Luke's gospel, you remember uh, Jesus encounters Satan at the beginning of the gospel, and Satan questions his core identity. And he says, if, if, if you are the Son of God, do this, do that, do the other. And here Jesus, in his last moments, is being questioned in exactly the same way. Sorry. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The same question. At the last, Jesus is confronted by Satan. And even in this confrontation with Satan, through the mouths of these other, this other criminal and through the mouths of the leaders, Jesus doesn't lash out. He doesn't bite back. His answer is forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. This is a large heart. It's an extraordinary response. They do not know when they do, what they're doing. What that takes, and as I'm saying this, I'm struck by it, what that takes is the ability to see the best in others. I don't know about you, but when I'm panicked, and I, know, I noticed this on our holiday, Amy, I don't know if I've told you this, but if I, two things that do this for me particularly is being late. If I'm slightly late, I start to get, I get into this like panic. Uh, I get really impatient, and I've forgotten the other, but that'll do for now. I start to panic, I start to close up, and I start to blame. And I start to think the worst of other people. You're making me late on purpose. You're doing this, you know, start to just, maybe you don't do that. I just begin to lash out and blame, and Jesus doesn't do that. He thinks the best of others, even in this most horrific circumstance. Finally, Jesus is excluded and yet hospitable. I recognize that word hospitable doesn't even begin <laughs> to explain what Jesus does here, what he's up to. And yet there's something in it that I think is really precious. Hospitality in the Greek is a collision of two different words. One is xenos, which means stranger or foreigner. It's the word from which we get xenophobia, hatred of foreigners. And the word actually is the opposite. It's Philozenia, love of the stranger. Jesus demonstrates, even though he's excluded, immense hospitality in this moment. Let's look at this. What do we see? Then he said, this is the criminal, the, the second criminal. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' whole ministry has been about extending and throwing open the doors of the kingdom of God to people who are on the margins or beyond the margins. He has said consistently, faithfully, day in and day out, that if you don't feel like you belong in God's place, in God's presence, I'm telling you, you do. His ministry has been all about hospitality. He's also had a warning for people who think they're in. Don't be so sure. If you're excluding other people, don't be so sure you get God's kingdom after all. But it's been an extraordinary vision of hospitality. And here, 
in this moment, under this stress, he doesn't even blink. He doesn't even waver. He carries forward the same vision, the same welcome. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me, with me in paradise. Jesus preparing a place for this criminal on the cross, even in his last moments. It's an incredible picture of grace under stress. What an extraordinary picture of Jesus we're given here. What an amazing example of what it means to respond. What does this mean for us? Well, very simply, we need to understand that Jesus did this. And here's the mystery of the cross. And I can't explain it to you. I don't have a theory which explains it. But I think the Holy Spirit wants to confirm it for us today. The mystery of the cross is that Jesus did this for us. That it wasn't some meaningless sacrifice 2,000 years ago. Though there's something violent, evil and arbitrary about it. It is actually focused and directed by the Spirit of God. And that it wasn't just something that was done back then. It's something that was done for us here and now. That he became vulnerable. He becomes vulnerable. So that you and I might be clothed. So that our shame and our nakedness would be met by his beautiful embrace, by his sacrifice on our behalf. So that we wouldn't need to feel exposed or alone in God's presence. So that we could come into God's presence confidently, knowing that we'll be accepted. That's why Jesus does this. That's what he's doing in this moment. Secondly, he was abused that we might be forgiven. Not forsaken, but forgiven. He was forsaken that we might be forgiven. It's an extraordinary picture that Jesus shows us here. That we belong in his presence because of what he's done on our behalf. And thirdly, he was excluded that we might be welcomed home. The hospitality given to this criminal is the hospitality Jesus offers to every one of us that we might be welcomed into God's presence. We belong with God. Church, this is our God. And I don't know how you think of God, but this is what I want to say to you. This is the point of this whole message. This is God. And when you're on your own, and I encourage you, some of you might want to do this now, just to quietly shut your eyes and ask the question, when I imagine God thinking of me, what is it I think that he thinks? What's the first thing that comes to his mind when he thinks of me? I imagine some of you feel uh, he feels disappointment or anger. But I think what Jesus displays to us is that that isn't at all what God is like. That what we have here in the scriptures revealed by Jesus is a God who is vulnerable. A God who makes himself vulnerable. A God who is forgiving. A God who is tender, even when we forsake and abuse him. A God who is gracious, a God who is merciful, just as Jesus displays all the way through the gospel. And I want to close with a, a text message that I received last night from Will Fulger, Reverend Will, who's at Legoland today. <laughs> Profound even in that place. 
This is what he said to me. The last few days, I've had the same picture of God's love as an outpouring, a constant flow out of his life as Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's incessant. And the images of us holding buckets, catching something of it. And I think it's an image of faith that all we do is catch. All our disciplines and praying and meditating is just us seeking to catch something of what's being poured out constantly. The point is that faith is just a reception. In your story, that's this story. We see Jesus with arms outstretched. God could quite literally offer no more. Here he is, actually naked, arms out, holding nothing back. He holds back not even his own life. He's completely, utterly vulnerable. Gives everything possible to us. And one man sees it and another man doesn't. Here's the point of the criminals. One man is able to explore and receive that grace of the God on the cross and the other is scandalized by it. One man experiences welcome into the kingdom because of it and the other man rejects forever because of it. And we as the church are the people who say yes to a God who is on a cross. A broken and vulnerable and naked God. A God who bridges the distance for us. A God who comes to our aid. A God who loves us so deeply that he gives himself for us. So many of us think God wants nothing to do with us because of our sin. We may have even built a theology around it. I remember hearing this as a kid. God can't even touch sin. He can't even look at sin. What an absurd lot of nonsense that is. If that is the case, how do you begin to explain the incarnation? That God becomes sin. And here on the cross, Jesus becomes sin. So we might be freed from sin. Christian God doesn't turn away from sinners in disgust, but moves towards us bringing us his redemptive presence. And my question to you today is, will you receive it? Which criminal do you want to be? Because you're a criminal. (laughs) That's the only role you get to audition for. (laughs) Which one do you want to be? Why don't we stand?